Turn in your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully you do, to Exodus chapter 20, as we continue a series on the Ten Commandments, a gospel perspective. Chapter 20 of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Exodus chapter 20, I want to read verses 1 through 3 as our scripture lesson this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Last week we did our introduction. uh, And... If you were here or watched it online or you're watching online, we stress the importance of, of reading and understanding and studying the law of God in, in its historical, covenantal, and redemptive context. The, the Ten Commandments was not dropped out of the sky, but was given within a significant time frame uh, during the work of God, the redemptive work of God. So I, I want to quickly, I'm not going to do this every Sunday, but I do want to, as Pastor Ricky mentioned, there's a couple of things we need to keep in mind as we launch into uh, our first commandment this morning. I just, four things, if you want to jot them down, that's great. If not, just pay attention uh, and hopefully you'll grab this and uh, we'll, we'll shrink it, we'll shorten it every week. But I want to make sure we understand this. And that, The first thing we need to understand as we look at the law of God, as we look at the Ten Commandments, is what I'll call the gospel revelation. Revelation, you know, is the uncovering, unveiling. The Ten Commandments given by God, by grace, is a reflection, we need to understand this, of the character and attributes of who God is. Romans chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy, the law is holy, and the commandments of God is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because God is holy, righteous, and good. God is what the Bible calls, or what theologians like to call, what the Bible teaches, is, uh, is immutable. Immutable means he does not change. He and his moral attributes are eternal, and therefore his moral law is perpetually binding. It remains in force for all people in all places at all times. His perfect will has been made known to us in Scripture, and it's our path to please the one who redeemed us and rescued us from sin, gospel revelation. The next is very important is gospel order, O-R-D-E-R, order. In Genesis 3, we saw this last week, in the midst of sin, in the midst of Adam and Eve's rebellion, in the midst of sin and death and judgment, God steps in by grace, announced in Genesis 3.15 that he promised the offspring, the seed of a woman would come. And redeem mankind. And God continued that promise when he called Abraham out of a pagan land. And made a covenant with Abraham and said, from you an offspring will come who will bless the world and redeem the world. And we know that person to be Jesus Christ. And God continued this promise he made in Genesis 3.15 to Abraham. uh, In Genesis 12 and 15, a covenant promise he made with him. By delivering Israel. Heirs of the covenant promise. He delivered them from, from slavery in Egypt. And then after he delivered them, he gave them the law. I think it was um, Kevin DeYoung. Salvation then, their rescue, salvation, was not the reward for their obedience. But salvation is the reason for their obedience. Not the reward, not like you obey me. And I'll deliver you. No, salvation is the reason for their obedience. God had already delivered 
the people of Israel before he gave them the law. Very important. And when God gathers his people in Mount, at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, and he comes down and he talks to the, his redeemed people, he doesn't say, do these things and I will adopt you. What he's saying is, I've already adopted you into my family. Now do these things. I love you. It's good for you. It's good for others. The Israelites have been delivered by the, by, and redeemed by God by the Passover lamb. According to his faithfulness, God's faithfulness. And now they have obligations, expectations as a delivered people who are already saved and redeemed. Very important we get that order right. Gospel revelation, gospel order, gospel relationship. We talked about this last week as well. The law of God, the moral standard of God, not only shows us our inability to fulfill its requirements, shows us who he is, it shows us our inability to, to, to fulfill his law. We can't do it because of sin. It should bring us to the place of, of crying out in desperation to Christ, who's the only one who fulfilled the law of God perfectly. The law of purpose is also to drive us into despair so that we take shelter from God's wrath in Christ, in, in his atoning sacrifice, in his perfect righteousness. And now that the righteousness of Christ, is, his perfect fulfillment of the law has been imputed, counted to us by faith. We can serve God. We can obey God with perfect freedom. We don't have to fear the terror of the law, of violating the law, the judgment or curse of violating the law. Why? Because Christ bore that on the cross. He died for our sins. Now we delight, as Pastor Ricky said, as the word tells us, in the law of God. Very important we understand that. The inner man has been changed. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God through repentance and faith in Jesus, your heart has been changed. You've been renewed. You've been regenerated by the work of the gospel. It changed our heart. It changed our disposition. It changed our relationships toward the, the commands of God. First John 5, for this is love. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God that we show forth the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So you have to understand that. The new covenant says in Jeremiah 31, he written, he has written his law on our hearts, written them on our minds. The relationship with God has been changed because of the gospel and therefore his commands are not burdensome by the power of the Holy Spirit and the inner desire by the Spirit's work that delights in knowing and delights in doing His will. So, gospel revelation, gospel order, gospel relationship. And lastly, as we jump into this uh, first commandment, the law of God is our gospel guide. Now that we've been justified, we've been made righteous by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, we've been forgiven of our sins, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, the law of God guides our steps. Jesus said, on two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Remember what they were? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. We're going to see it today. To love God above all things. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second part of the, of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, we're not under the law in the sense of we're not trying to earn the approval of God by obeying him. We're not trying to earn our acceptance, our forgiveness, our way into the presence of God through our obedience. We could never do that. That's what it means to live under the law. I'm just going to keep reading my Bible. I'm just going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep doing all these moral things. And now that I've done all the things, God now accepts me and loves me. That's living under the law. We don't live under the law. 
But we don't live over the law. Remember, we said that last week. As if I decide what's right and what's wrong, I will decide how to love people. I will decide what I should and should not do. That's, that's living over the law. No, the moral law becomes our path, our guide. And I said this last week, very important. As long as we understand, it cannot, it will not save us. Well, our salvation is by grace alone through the work and perfect moral record of Jesus. And therefore, the law... Because Christ bore the penalty of violating and breaking the law, it no longer can condemn us. Romans 13. Again, Paul says, how do you love one another? Fulfill and do the law. The fulfillment of the law is love, and love is expressed with obeying the moral law of God. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a teaching out there that says the moral standard of God, the moral law of God, does not apply to Christians. Paul would disagree. Matthew 5, Jesus would disagree. But there's some people that teach that. And what happens is sometimes people take the law and they throw it out as if to say it has nothing to do with us. And when you ask them, then how, what is the fulfillment of the law? They will tell you love. The New Testament clearly teaches love is the fulfillment of the law. My question next would be, well, what does love look like? Love doesn't cheat, doesn't steal, doesn't commit adultery, doesn't covet. All the things is what law shows us. That's the point. So remember, it's historical, covenantal, and redemptive context, okay? As we look at the first commandment. So three things we'll see today. Uh, First is there's only one true God. No matter what you've been taught, there's only one true and living God. There's one and true worship. And then one and true Savior. So turn with me again to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Look at the prologue. I actually think there's two prologues, 19, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, 5. Um, actually, yeah, through 5 is another prologue, but uh, uh, let's look at uh, chapter 20, verse 1 for a moment. And God spoke all these words. God spoke them. Again, as I said last week, not, not Moses' uh, bright idea. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. If you, if you read that in its original text, in, in original language, it could either mean no other gods before me, meaning none other but me, or no other god before my face. Probably this intimacy, relationship, probably a little bit of both. John Calvin writes this about, he said, the sin here of violating the first commandment is like a shameless woman who brings an adulterer before her husband's very eyes only to vex his mind the more, end quote. So let me give you an illustration what I, what, what I believe this commandment is teaching us, what this commandment says to us as a people. Now, every illustration has flaws in it. When you're talking about God and you bring an illustration, everyone has a flaw. We don't want to take this too far, but I think it's good. I think it's a good illustration. Exactly what does this commandment mean? Now, we know, according to Ephesians chapter 5, that marriage is an illustration of the gospel. Christ and his church is seen as or, or, or is looked at in a way as marriage between a husband and a wife. We see the analogy made by the Apostle Paul in chapter 5. In the Old Testament, though, what you read in the Old Testament many places, um, it speaks of, marriage speaks of also as Israel's unfaithfulness, their lack of faithfulness to, to their God, all right? Uh, their unfaithfulness to God. The book of Hosea teaches us about their 
broken marriage, their, 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 their violation, their adultery before God. Israel is compared to adulterous woman. In fact, if you read in the Old Testament, man, some of those prophets get very, very graphic in their, in their pointing out just how unfaithful Israel was. The point is, you cannot have a, a both-and relationship with your spouse, right? I mean, not for very long. So suppose a husband comes home from a long day at work and he says to his wife, listen, honey, it's really good to be home. I'm glad I'm home. It's good to see you. But I do have somebody else that is very special to me. Now, don't misunderstand me, honey. You're very special too. But I met somebody. She's very nice. She's very sweet. I really think you'll like her. And and I'm going to spend most of my time with you. I'm going to spend most of my days with you. But if you don't see me on one night or I'm gone one day a week, just so you know, um, I'll be with her instead. And I, honey, you really mean a lot to me. I want you to know that. Ladies, what would her response be? Thank you so much. I appreciate you letting me know that. Uh, I'm just so happy that I could be part of your life and, and you're giving me a heads up, right? No. The wife would say, let me make this perfectly clear. Her or me, that's it. Make your choice. In fact, there's probably a lot of passion, a bit of anger, uh, a great deal of uh, angst when she says, in fact, we wouldn't think she'd be unfair or, 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 or fanatical or, or cruel. We would say like, yeah, go girl, tell them, right? She has every right to be jealous. Actually, if she, if it was not met with that kind of anger, that kind of passion, that kind of firmness, we would say there's a problem here in the marriage. Some relations are meant to be either or, not both and. Marriage is a relationship that, that demands forsaking all others. So it is with God. Love and relationship is at the very heart of the first commandment. If we, if we truly love God, we will love no one else and nothing else like we love the Lord. And that's why the Shema was taught in Israel for years and foundational to the understanding. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. You see, love, love advocates affection, but also is a direction. It's a decision that someone makes. In fact, the Shema called God's people to choose the Lord above all others because he has chosen them first. New Testament teaches the same thing. And now we forsake all others. We pledge ourselves completely and totally and to loyalty to the one true God. There can be no and in our relationship with God. We love and worship him above all others because he alone is the Lord. But I think we can ask, and I think we do need to ask in our culture and in our day, what God are we talking about? Remember the prologue in Exodus 19? As I mentioned earlier, uh, if you have a Bible, chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is right before he gives the law. What I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the people on the earth. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then again in chapter 20, verse 1. 
And God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Can we go back to the first slide, Mike? My fault. So, who is me? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land. Who is me? You shall have no other God beside me. Who's speaking? What's the context? What's the demand? The, man, the demand comes, the context comes as a God who says, I've created the universe. I rule the world. All belongs to me. I redeemed you. I rescued Israel. And now, because I'm shown myself as the redeemer, as the creator, as the ruler, worship only me, the one true God who redeemed you out of slavery. Now, I don't know if you know this, and maybe some of you do. Remember the context. Remember, remember Israel was just delivered out of Egypt. You remember the story. There were how many plagues? Ten, right? Ten plagues. Each one of those plagues in Egypt, what God used to deliver his people, to redeem his people, each one of those plagues that God sent upon the Egyptian was a declaration of the sovereignty and the exclusivity of God. His power, his authority, his supremacy as ruler and judge of the world. Each one of those plagues spoke directly to their God, small g, in Egypt. And that God alone is the God of the universe. And that the Egyptian gods, the other gods, so-called gods, small g, were nothing. So the first plague that God sent, he turned the water of the Nile into blood. The Nile was a God that they worshipped in Egypt. The God of the Nile. The second plague was bringing frogs from the Nile. Was a judgment against an Egyptian God. I don't know if I get these words right, but he quit. A frog-headed goddess at birth, of, of birth, and frogs were thought to be sacred and not to be killed. The third plague was gnats, was a judgment on Set, the god of the desert. The fourth plague, flies, was a judgment of you, you at it, who was depicted as flies. And in this plague, if you remember the plague, God distinguishes between the Israelites and the Egyptians so that the swarm of flies didn't go near the Israelites, but only the Egyptians. Fifth plague, dead livestock, judgment of the goddess Hathar and Apis, both depicted as, as cattle. And what God was doing again in this plague, destroying the economy of Egypt, showing his ability to, to rescue and to save and to protect those who were his. The sixth plague was the boils. They had gods over health and, and gods over diseases. So this is a polytheistic culture, worship multiple gods. Seventh and eighth plague, hail and locusts. Uh, to God, the God of the, uh, the sky goddess, the crop goddess, the, the storm goddess. You see, God was bringing forth judgment, showing forth his sovereignty. Ninth plague was darkness. They worshiped a God called Re, R-E. And actually, that was something that Pharaoh uh, took a name for himself. And three days, if you know the story, the land of Egypt was covered in darkness, but Israel had what? Light. The tenth plague, of course, the last of dead firstborn males, was a judgment on ISIS, ISIS, the protective children. So, walk with me here. When Israel is delivered, I think it's it's really safe to say that God was declaring his exclusivity, his his supremacy over false deities as he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Even the New Testament says the Lord Jesus Christ is over all. God bless forever, Romans 9, 5. 
Here we see the exclusivity of the one true God, the monotheism, one true God that meets our own pagan religions of our world. This, this polytheistic that there are multiple gods, multiple ways to understand God, multiple ways to connect with God. And in the first commandment, God is telling his people, I am the sovereign God of history. I am the one who spoke the world into existence. I am the one who led you out of bondage and out of slavery. I am the only one who can save you. I am the only one who will love you. And I'm the only one who wants to love by grace and mercy show you forth the love that your creator has toward you because I am sovereign. I can unconditionally love you. You know, we're taught there are many gods, there are many ways. There, there, There are many books. This commandment teaches us there is only one true God creator and sovereign over the world. And as is foundational, family, the first commandment is foundational to the rest. That's why the first commandment is the first commandment. There's only one God who has the divine rights over his creation. He has divine rights and loves his creation. And part of the struggle that we have with law, keeping the law, is we disconnect it from the one who gave the law, the heart of the lawgiver. And that's why you read in the New Testament, you see the Pharisees love the law, but not the Lord. Because for them, they focused on the law more than they focused on the heart of the lawgiver. Very important. And the reason these Ten Commandments have a binding obligation because he is God over us, created us, he loves us. He, 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 and all the other foundational, all of the other uh, commandments is really grounded on this one. And this commandment also means this, and it's important again in our culture, in our day, in our time, that faith in faith is not healthy, <laughs> is not good. Faith in anything, no matter how sincere your faith be, if it is in the wrong direction in the wrong God, it is harmful, it is false, it is damning. The most significant quality of our faith is not how hard we believe, but in the one in whom we do believe. There's a certainty, there's, there's... Certainly a subjective, monastic component of faith. We want our hearts to be right. There's a, there's a sense of, of sincerity, a single-minded devotion. But to have a sincerely misguided belief in the wrong thing or the wrong person is not saving faith at all. In fact, the gospel, the, the prosperity gospel, false teachers, you know how they teach. They teach that we can decree, call into being, call into very existence by the force of faith. That's what they teach. Just as God created the world, we speak things into existence. But according to Scripture, faith is not a power. Faith itself can do nothing. If faith could save, if faith could heal, if faith could bring prosperity, then faith would be God. New Age mystics, spiritualists, prosperity preachers, in describing faith as an attribute of who God is, is really just idolatry. Someone once said, faith is like a telephone wire. I know some of y'all are like, I don't know what that is. It used to be a wire going around. Uh, it cannot create a conversation between two people, but only be the instrument through which two people communicate. So faith in anyone or anything other than the one true God has revealed, revealed himself in Christ, revealed himself in the word of God is idolatry. Even if faith is good, worthwhile, and in notable things. And I hear this all the time. 
<laughs> yes, all the time. Especially uh, Mark chapter 5, Jesus heals a woman who had a bleeding disorder. And he says to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. See, it's faith. No. That's not what Jesus means. Faith is not God. Faith was the vehicle by which she touched Jesus. There's a huge difference. Right? There is a huge difference. Your faith made you well means that your faith connected you to the healer. God overall, creator, redeemer, sovereign Lord. And by faith, you touched me and I healed you. That was the vehicle. There's a big difference between the two. Let me illustrate it. I think I've used this before, but I think it's a great illustration. Dr. Tim Keller. Imagine you are on a high cliff and you're, uh, you're on a high cliff and you lose your footing. You begin to fall. As you're falling from the cliff, just beside you is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope, and it seems more than strong enough. How can it save you? If you remain, if you're certain the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. Down you go. If instead your mind is filled with doubts, filled with uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you'll be saved. Why, he says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch, end quote. Biblical faith believes the historical facts about who God is, who God revealed himself to be, and in Christ. It means to trust him. Fully and completely without reservation. To believe in God is to reject all of the ways of salvation. All of the ways of self-justification. Having one true God. There is no salvation, Acts tells us. In no one else is there any other name, any other name under heaven given among men which thou must be saved. One true God. And that brings us to one true worship. It is possible to be full to be sincere and worship the wrong God. That's one of the reasons the first commandment is here. He's revealed himself so that we can know him and we can worship him correctly. And many of you, and some of you, I should say, we, we, maybe you have family members, maybe you yourself have been through the AA program or the NA program. Uh, good programs, better to be sober and clean uh, at, in a program than not, so I'm not knocking their program. But what they teach is there's a God out there as, as you understand him, it to be. You make that decision. You make that determination. But the God of the Bible is not interested in being recognized as one of many strong and mighty deities. In, in the antiquity, back in the Old Testament, as today, lots of people had lots of impressive gods and goddesses, small g. But family, what was unique about the God of Scripture, what was the unique about the God of Israel, that God, that God that, that set Israel apart from other nations demanded to be worshipped alone as the only God. Exclusion from all others. That's when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's reminding them of their deliverance, of the, the plagues in the Red Sea. And he's saying to them, why would you trust why would you worship any other so-called God? You didn't escape Egypt on your own. It wasn't because you were so smart and so strong. Actually, I did all the work. 
I put you on eagle's wings. I defeated the mighty army of Egypt. I brought you out of the land. You can trust me. The first commandment is not suggesting that there are other gods. And what we need to do as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, we just need to choose the right God or, or choose a better God. That's not, no. That's not what he's saying. No other God should be worshipped because in reality there are no gods at all but Yahweh, our God. That's the point that Paul makes later on uh, in, in, the, in the first uh, um, letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... Um, had issues going on with food off of idols in 1 Corinthians. He says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, small g and many lords, small l, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Even one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. God is a sovereign God, upholds and governs the world. He's not a candidate. You're not going to hear him running for election. It's not about getting more votes. He's not a deity that just permissively allows everything is okay. You can have other gods too, whether it be work, whether it be pleasure, whether it be relationships, money, whatever it is. As long as you know what, from time to time, you admire me. That's not what God is saying. You see, in paganism, we create gods for our own pleasure. Right? That's paganism. They exist to make me happy. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. And God's people in back then and even today were constantly tempted to make their faith a both and religion. We could worship God and other things rather than an either or. Either worship me alone, that's what this commandment is teaching us, or you don't worship me at all. Some of you may be here thinking, well, I don't worship. Or maybe you don't understand the depth of our hearts and souls who created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. Maybe you don't understand that we were created in the image of likeness of God, where in the Trinity there is, there is glory, there is love being poured out on one another within the Trinity. And that when God created us, he didn't create us just as people who worship him, although that's true, he created us as worshipers. All people everywhere at all times, all humanity, every living soul are worshipers, period. And the Bible says that we were created for his glory, to declare his glory, to image forth his glory to the world, to bring him glory. It doesn't mean to make him more glorious, he already is, but to ascribe him glory, to value him above all earthly value, to, to, to give him the glory and the praise and the worth that is due his name. Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations. Marvelous work among all the people. Psalm 117.1, praise the Lord, all nations extol him, all people. And as we look at this first commandment, we need to recognize not so much do we worship, but who we worship. We, we as people creating the Imago Dei, as, as people who are worshipers, we are, just by our very nature, constantly and persistently pouring out worship. 
sacrificing to something or to someone. We're giving ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our money, our devotion, our, the directions of our worship to something or some way. And because we were created that way, but sin entered the world, we all, all of us, have fallen short of the glory of God, and we worship things because of sin. We, we, send, we, 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 we give honor and glory, and we worship wrongly and sinfully. Some people call it pride. Look how well I'm doing. Look, look at all my money I have. Look at all the prestige I have. Look at all the, 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 uh, the power I have. I've done very well for myself. Some people mask and say it's an addiction. What really, addiction is really a worship disorder. We worship by giving something or someone glory and we sacrifice to that thing. And we make worship decisions all the time. Pull out your checkbook. Pull out your planning book. There, there's a direction in which our hearts are bent. Life is full of decisions. And when we do not worship God by ascribing Him the preeminence and the priority of our lives, giving Him the glory and the worth that is due Him, it's called idolatry. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week. So don't just think of wooden things that people carve. There are a lot more about idolatry than that. But what I want us to see this morning, though, is to have no God before Him is to only worship the one true God. He alone has our single devotion, our, our primary love, our greatest treasure. And what does that look like? What does it mean when, when the Scripture says to worship Him and to Him alone? What does that mean? Does that mean we just sit in church all day, every day, just singing songs? No. Let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me give you an illustration of what it looks like to worship God supremely, okay? Everything in your life, everything in my life becomes subservient to him. Everything. He's not an add-on on many things I got going on, uh, many things I do. Let me add some religion. Let me add some worship. Let me, let me, let me add on church this is a Sunday morning. No, that's not what it means to worship the one true God. To worship the one true God means all of my life is subservient to him. If you were a swimmer, if you were a gymnast, if you were an ice skater, and you were on the Olympic team... And your goal in your life at that moment was to work hard for two years so that you could go to the Olympics and win a gold. And you had 24 months to practice. You had 24 months to get ready. I will tell you that everything in your life will be subservient to that goal. What you eat, how you exercise, where you live, everything will be subservient to the goal of winning the gold medal. When God says, I am the one true God, I am the one whom you should worship, means that everything in my life is subservient to his glory. He's my greatest treasure. And flowing from him is everything else in my life. We want the, that little and, right? <laughs> Matthew six twenty four. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either. He will hate the one, love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We want that little land. We want the Lord, our God, and the Baals, or the Asherah, or the, or the Lord and my money, the Lord and my fame, and the Lord and my health. And we want all these things. We'll be happy to have our lives uh, filled with other things and to squeeze God in as long as we can manage God. Right? He's one piece of the puzzle. 
one important person among others. And family, let me make this statement. God cannot be worshipped rightly if he is worshipped alongside any other thing or any other person. The other nine commandments speaks of acts you should and shouldn't do, but this first commandment speaks of relationships and that all other things are subservient to him. One true God, one true worship, one true Savior. There were two mountaintop experiences, two mountaintop experiences where God revealed himself to his people. Exodus chapter 19, we have this thunder, this lightning, the mountain shakes. Exodus 19, the glory cloud comes down, the very presence comes down on the mountain of Sinai. And God then gives his law to Moses for the people in Exodus 20. Centuries later, another mountain. The glory cloud comes down and descends upon the mountain again, overshadows the mountain. The same cloud of glory, the very presence of God that envelops Sinai, envelops this mountain. And on that day, three of Jesus' disciples stood gripped as they saw Moses and Elijah show up. Representative of the Old Testament law, Moses, and representative of the prophets, you have Elijah. And there they were, talking with Jesus. The Bible says they were talking about his departure. His exodus, which is the work, the redemption, the salvation of Christ through the cross of Christ. But on that day, instead of the Ten Commandments written in, 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 on tablets of stone, God spoke one commandment that day. And he said this, and I put it together from the Synoptic Gospels, which means similar, all three Gospels. So this is what, this is what God said. He said, this is my beloved son. My chosen one, whom I am well pleased, listen to him. The first commandment shall have no other gods before me now has been declared to be the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Deliverance, redemption, salvation is through Christ alone. And here alone, he fulfills the claim. When, he, when God made the claim, Christ fulfills the, the, the claim that, that, that God made. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of that land of slavery. And you see the connection. The, the physical deliverance of Israel from Egypt was a foreshadow of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secured by his perfect life, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. In, in fact, if you were to read Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 in a New Testament light, it would say this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery to Satan, to sin, and death by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the first commandment demands worship of the one true God. And now is expressed in devotion to the Son who shows us the Father. The Apostle John, listen to this Listen to this. Uh, listen to what John writes in 1 John 5. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, revealed to us the Father, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Where did that come from? Well... The opposite of the one true worship of the one true God, of the one true Savior is what? Idolatry. Christ, singular and exclusive. 
That's why no philosophy or ideology can have, can give you eternal life. You must go through the Son to enter into a relationship with God. Jesus is the one true God. All other gods are false gods. Little demons. And now, this does not distract us from the worship of God, the Father. In fact, in order to love and worship the Father, you must come through the Son. We can only know the love of the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father, in His love, we know, sent the Son, gave us His Son, and the commandment is fulfilled now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Moses said back in Deuteronomy, the number one commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said the same thing in the New Testament. But how does that happen with our relationship with Jesus? Can we love the Father without loving the Son? I don't think so. (laughs) In fact, I know not. John 14. Again, in light of this first commandment, listen to what Jesus says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Okay, if if you love me, you're going to follow my commands. Not, 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 you know, follow my commands and I love you. That's not what he says. And he who loves me will be what? Loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And he will come and we will come to him and make our home with him, with her. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word and the word that they hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. So if we look at this first commandment in light of our relationship with Christ, we see these, we see the, the tale of these two mountains. We see that God came down on Mount Sinai and said, worship me alone. And then centuries later, God comes down on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You see that? The God who said, worship me and listen to my law now says, worship me and listen to my son. The first commandment is transformed by the coming of Christ. Not transformed in the sense of not being applicable in those days or not today, but in the sense in which we obey the first command. It's been transposed by the coming of Christ. For us today, the first commandment means giving Christ the worship he deserves as the one mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1. He is the one before whom everyone will bow in worship, Philippians 2. If you know me, Jesus said, you have known the Father. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you know me, you know God. If you follow me, if you love me and you worship me, you worship God. When you see me, you have seen God in the flesh. As Christians, we believe in one God. One true God. We believe the scriptures teach us about the Trinity, the nature of God. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God is one in essence, co-equal and co-eternal, yet three in persons. There is one God. John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus in his high priestly prayer. This, he's praying to his Father. This is eternal life. That they... That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know what the implication of that is? If you don't know God in Christ, then you don't really know God at all. 
The first commandment can no longer be properly observed unless we worship the one who alone shows us the one true God. Is it, it isn't enough just to say, I have a God, you have a God, we all have our God. No, we are not worshiping the one true God unless we're worshiping the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. And the coming of Christ changes everything. And now we as a church affirm that Jesus is the better and greater Moses. And the one who fulfills the law perfectly. He's the better and greater Passover lamb who was slain to remove God's wrath from us. Jesus is the greater and better firstborn who died for our sins. He's the greater and better pillar and cloud who walks with us moment by moment. Jesus is the better and the greater victor who defeated not an earthly king, but sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is the greater and better savior who redeemed the people not from one nation, but redeems people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Jesus is the greater and better redeemer, taking us to a greater and better promised land, the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus is the greater and better lawgiver, not writing it on stone, but now writing, well, first writing it on stone, and now writing it on our hearts that we want to obey. Now, this may be a shock to some of you. I'm going to close now. We're not the center of the universe. And sometimes the reason we're in a miserable mess, sometimes, because we worship ourselves and our focus is on other things where we're trying to redeem and justify ourselves. Family, we were made to worship God. We were made to enjoy Him. We were made to come to the place of bringing Him glory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we as a family acknowledge with a whole heart that there is one true and living God who revealed himself in scripture and finally in Jesus Christ? Can we as a family worship him and him alone through Jesus Christ? And when we don't, and when we don't, we know where to run. We run to the cross. We run to the place in which Jesus died for our sins. And as, as Calvin says, our hearts are little idol factories. We, we tear down the idols we confess our sins. We repent of our sins by, by not worshiping the one true God, and one true worship, and one true Savior. And what we do, we, we receive God's forgiveness because Jesus died for all our sins. It's one God, Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning that you revealed yourself to us, that we are not left to our own imagination to try to come out, come up and figure out uh, what's, what, what you need, what you want, how you want us to live, and how you want to redeem and save us. You have made it very clear to us. And it's our own hearts that sometimes want to wander. But we know about... We know that by your spirit that dwells within us, there is a desire that you place there by your spirit through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to want to love you, to want to follow you, to want to obey you. And Lord, we don't do it perfectly, but we do it joyfully, knowing that our sins are forgiven and we can radically love you and obey you, knowing that you are good, always good. You're always revealing your glory to us and we know that you're always working for our own good. So may we never, never, never obey you to try to get you to love us. But may we understand that you love, forgive, and accept us because of Christ. And that will free us to love you, the one true God, to worship you, the one true God, 
and to worship Jesus, our great God and Savior, who made it all possible through his perfect life, death and resurrection from the grave. And help us as we sing, we pray.